Thank you. Uh, I love Grace Life. I love my church family. Um, preaching the truth of Scripture week after week systematically is one of the greatest joys of my life. And uh, I hate missing. So, you know, and Dr. Sutton was here a few weeks ago filling in for me so I could have a semi-week off. But those don't happen very often. Not because I don't have other people that can fill in. I just hate missing. So, amen. Yes. A precious one, too. <laughs> She loves dogs, so. Um, We're going through Revelation. Uh, This week is week 17. It's the wrath of the Lamb. Now, this is important for you guys to hear. When you preach systematically through Scripture, without skipping challenging passages, you'll have to every once in a while preach sermons on God's judgment. I've had to preach a few of these sermons in my career, and I must tell you, I don't really enjoy any of them. Yes, there is a Jesus who for us represents mercy and grace and forgiveness. And as comforting as his grace and mercy are, there is also another side of Jesus that's just as as frightening. You remember a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon called Two Jesuses. There is this grace and mercy side of Jesus, then there is the wrath side of Jesus. And when I was a younger person, and I ran in hardcore fundamentalist circles, I heard men preach fiery sermons on God's judgment. It almost almost seemed as though they found pleasure in preaching these judgment sermons, like they enjoyed it. They were emotional sermons, they were dramatic, and they were effective in inciting emotional responses, especially from younger people. I mean, how does it make you feel to know there is a wrath part of who Jesus is? That he's not just this gentle lamb of God who came and died on the cross so that we might have life and be reconnected to the Father. I mean, it's, it's a challenging thing, but what if... What if it's possible that we've totally misunderstood the reason there are wrath passages, especially in the book of Revelation? What if today's passage on wrath about the wrath of God isn't intended to be scary at all? What if the wrath of the Lamb is supposed to be intended to be encouragement and affirmation for those who follow Jesus? Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, we're at the sixth seal out of seven. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by wind or a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? There's some interesting history that I think is often neglected in this passage. First of all, I want you to explain what the church has done with these six seals all the way up to this point over the last 200 years. For 17 centuries of church history, 
Seals 1 through 5 were understood to be the unfolding of the entire plan of redemption. From the fall of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel to the cross and beyond. However, in 1830, there was a new theological system that was created called dispensationalism. Teaching that these five seals, remember we've talked about them, the four horsemen and then the martyrs under the altar, that those five seals were future events that were yet to happen. And let me explain. So this system called dispensationalism was created by an English preacher named John Darby. It was based upon the vision of a 15-year-old woman in his church, Margaret MacDonald. And what dispensationalism taught was that Jesus would come, first he would rapture his church out of the world, and then start opening up these five seals of judgment. And once he raptures his church up, here comes this frightening seven-year period of global tribulation, which includes the four horsemen and the martyrs, and the church is spared from all this. And what began to happen is evangelists from England would come to America and start teaching this particular interpretation of the book of Revelation, and it became the dominant influence in the American church. And it was appealing for many reasons, because at that time in the 1830s, there was a new liberal theology that was starting to infect the American church, mainly that they would deny the literal return of Jesus and the day of judgment. So dispensationalism, with all its meticulous details and emphasis on the physical return of Jesus, became a well-intentioned rallying cry, sort of, sort of like a retaliation to liberal theology that says, oh, don't worry about judgment, don't worry about the return of Jesus, none of that is real. And dispensationalism's effectiveness was seen with fiery sermons that spread fear of being left behind missing out on the rapture, and then having to endure these six seals. So that's kind of what the church has done in the last 200 years with Revelation, but that's sort of a very new interpretation. For 17 centuries, it was something different that we've alluded to over the last 16 weeks, and we'll continue to do that today. I want to talk about these heavenly signs because they're quite graphic, right? You know, the sun is dark, the stars fall, there's earthquakes and blood moon. The Old Testament prophets actually used the images of earthquakes, darkened sun, falling stars, all sorts of cosmic upheaval events repeatedly. They're all throughout the Old Testament. They are, in fact, symbols of judgment used in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Nahum, in Zephaniah, in Joel, in Malachi, Hosea, Haggai, and Daniel. A lot of them. They are hyperbolic metaphors used to warn that a dramatic change is coming to the world order. Something unique is about to happen, and the way you have lived life is going to change. These are hyperbolic metaphors and symbols used to warn of major shakeups in how the world operates. One example, just like all the others, I think a good example is in the book of Isaiah to describe God using the Persians to judge and to wipe out the Babylonian Empire. Remember, at this point, Israel had been in the Babylonian captivity for hundreds of years. And look what Isaiah says about that day. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. Doesn't that sound familiar? 
The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. This was about the judgment of the Babylonian Empire. And when Persia did in fact conquer Babylon, the sun didn't go dark. The mountains didn't move, but Babylon was certainly wiped out. And these acts of judgment on these empires always marked major points in Jesus' plan of redemption as we move toward the cross. And that's what John does here. He borrows the same metaphoric approach of all the prophets in the Old Testament to describe the return of Jesus. And that's what John does. It's familiar Old Testament prophetic metaphors to call attention to the final dramatic change in world order. And each time that these prophecies, these prophetic metaphors were used, it became very traumatic events in history. See, when ancient empires would dominate the known world for hundreds of years, these changes would be traumatic and painful. New empires come to power with new and different values, creating massive changes in everyone's way of life. These changes would often cause significant suffering for many people. It could literally feel like the end of the world as new rules and new demands and new economic systems were arbitrarily imposed. Everything people were accustomed to, both good and because you know how you get used to even bad things in life and it's not so bad anymore, but everything people were accustomed to, good and bad, is now turned on its ear. Everything is in upheaval. And those who benefited from the old regimes would probably suffer the most under the new empire. And the poor who had learned ways to barely survive and stitch life together day after day now have to come up with new systems. They have to start all over and figure it out again. And that's what God's judgment does. Here's another example. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, the Gospels describe what? Earthquakes and darkness. That marked a big change too, didn't it? That moment was a cataclysmic change in the spiritual world. A catastrophic blow for the forces of evil. That day marked a flip in the theological calendar. And the last days where the church grows until the day of the Lord began. It set the countdown clock to the day that is described in our passage today. The final judgment of all evil. So that's the history. There's a lot of cool stuff there. Look at the theological side of this. What about God? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I've just simply called this the day of the Lord. And it is a day of darkness. The scene of judgment was described by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. So if you're thinking about this, I want you to keep a mental finger in your Bible at Matthew 24, because we'll flip back to it again later. But look at Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. I'm just going to read through 30 right now. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. By the way, do we remember what John said he was a partner in with the churches? I, John, a partner with you in the what? Tribulation. This is not a future tribulation. It's a tribulation happening now from the moment of Jesus' resurrection until he returns. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven will be shaken, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. 
Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That sounds a lot like Revelation 6, doesn't it? Keep that in mind because there's another verse, verse 31, which will really tie all this together for you later. Jesus says two things are going to happen on that day. The same day he opens that sixth seal that we see in Revelation. The first one is that that day will be fear and anxiety and anger and resentment toward the lamb. Who will judge all of the unredeemed past, present and future. It's where Jesus says he personally judges all the nations of the world, not some, all. And the impact on the unredeemed is, in fact, terrifying and devastating. As a matter of fact, Joel chapter 2 is a prophecy of that day, and it describes it as a day of darkness and gloom and clouds and thick darkness with earthquakes and the heavens trembling. Joel 2 says the sun and moon grow dark, the stars lose their brightness, on earth there is blood and fire and columns of smoke. It's pretty clear the unredeemed have so much to fear. The scripture says they cry out to be buried with rocks rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. And what we see is every class of person faces this judgment. The wealthy, the powerful, the poor, the defenseless, all of those who have not put their faith in Christ are in danger. Look what Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30 and 31 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is what the martyrs under the altar had been wanting. Remember that? We talked about that, the fifth seal. How long, O Lord? Why are you waiting? Please come back and avenge us. When are you going to take care of evil? This is the day that they're waiting for, the vindication of the righteous and the wrath of the Lamb. And Jesus describes this. He says, or Paul describes this. He says, during that day, many will say, peace and safety. What does he mean by that? It doesn't mean that everybody says, oh, it sure is peaceful. Oh, it sure is safe. That's not what it means. Look what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture here, but this is just an amazingly connected passage all throughout the Bible. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. This is what the powerful promise, is it not? This is their slogan that they use to put the world at ease. Trust us. We have the plans, our wisdom, our discernment, our policies, our culture, our agenda will bring utopia. We know the secrets to peace and safety. Leave it to us. Our wisdom is all you need. Of course, this promise always works better for the haves than the have-nots in every system. And human history tells us those promises are never more than temporary at best or forever elusive at worst and sadly most often. And their solutions rarely, if ever, by the way, include let's pray to God and ask him for wisdom. Let's ask the creator what should we do. Instead, the world believes it can solve the problems and bring peace and safety through human wisdom policies, politics, cultural movements, whether it be far-left liberal wokeism or far-right Christian nationalism. We will bring peace and safety. Just follow our wisdom. But the fact is, on that day, 
the whole world order will be shown that there's only one true path to peace and safety. It is the wrath of the Lamb. The day of the Lord, when evil and darkness, as we've talked about the last several weeks, will be forever separated from the wheat and the kingdom of heaven. So that's the one thing Jesus says will happen. There is this day of darkness, this day of judgment, but it's also a day of redemption. Look what he says. I read you chapter 24, verses 29 and 30. Look what he also says happens on this day. And tell me what you think it sounds like. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. What does that sound like? This rapture we've always heard about? It's the same passage where Jesus says, after the tribulation, there will be this judgment. The darkness, the skies, and all those things, all the nations will be judged. They'll say, fall on us rocks. We don't want to worship the lamb. We'd rather die than be judged by him. And he says, after that, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and call all the elect together. As with all acts of God's judgment throughout history, there is always a blessing intended for the righteous through it. Notice what else happens in verse 31. He sends out his angels to gather the elect throughout human history. And once again, you can see where the day of the Lord ties together with what? This beautiful parable of the wheat and the weeds. Look what Jesus says happens in the wheat and the weeds at the end. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell my reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. The day of judgment. But gather the wheat into the barn. The rapture. Isn't this cool stuff how the scripture interprets itself? This day of the Lord is also the same day of this rapture. The day Jesus vanquishes evil and gathers his harvest together. Okay, that's a lot. Look at the personal section. What are we supposed to do about this? How do we respond to a sermon on judgment? I want to talk about how we as Christians should come to a place of understanding judgment. This is my sermon preview this week. To fully appreciate the joy of redemption, you must acknowledge the day of the Lord, the horror of facing the wrath of the Lamb. You know, it may seem like the purpose for a sermon on the wrath of the Lamb is to scare people into following Jesus. To elicit some emotional decision or response of confession and repentance that hopefully leads to lasting transformation. But John said Revelation was not written to scare non-Christians. Remember what he said? This book is written to bless those who have ears to hear. He says, I've written Revelation not to frighten you, but to encourage those of you who follow Jesus. So clearly the intention of Revelation chapter 6 and the sixth seal is not to scare people who don't know Jesus. It's to encourage people who do. Matthew 13, look what Jesus says here. You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull with their ears and they can... Be- By the way, can you, do you notice that I keep in Revelation going back to Matthew 13 and Matthew 24... Matthew 13, Matthew 24, Matthew 13, Matthew 24. Week after week after week, there is a reason. You cannot understand Revelation without the old prophets and Matthew 13 and Matthew 24 open. You just can't. He says, for this people's heart has grown dull 
with their ears they can barely hear, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their ears and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. <coughs> People fear many things in life, things that could bring massive painful change, disrupt what we count on as peaceful and safe. We also fear unknowns. We just know something bad is going to happen, and many live as captives to that anxiety. We also fear specific, anticipated things we know that we are powerless to stop, even if we see them coming. But the fact is, most of the world does not fear the one thing they should, which is the wrath of the Lamb of God, the return of Jesus, and the day of the Lord. You would think the greatest gospel sermon ever would be those who hear and see and witness the day of wrath, right? Okay, now I get it. I mean, what human in their right mind wouldn't see the logic of turning to Jesus for grace and mercy on the actual day of judgment? I will tell you, it seems like even the most devout, obstinate atheist would witness that horror and rationally, logically cry out to the Lamb for mercy. But they won't. Instead, they will cry out for the rocks to bury them rather than acknowledge the Lamb of God. This persistent unwillingness, no matter what, to not only reject God but to hate Him is the natural state of all humanity unless God intervenes with the Spirit. The reason people won't turn to Jesus that day is the same reason many won't turn to Jesus because of this sermon today. Because without the gift of faith, people live oblivious to what they should fear the most, the coming wrath of the Lamb. Without the gift of faith and awe and reverence for the day of the Lord, it becomes a non-existent threat There is no fear of the Lord in them. And sadly, for those who cannot put their hope in the Lamb of God, that day will be a shock and a surprise and not a good one. Those who hear this passage and have zero concerns with the day of the Lord, that day will be frightening. As a result for them, this is where life becomes sad, the only hope for life is earthly stability earthly peace, earthly safety, earthly prosperity, and temporary fulfillment. That's it. How miserable. But there is a time, and this is how this passage becomes encouraging. I I promise you I was getting there, and I, I meant it. There is a time when fear does bring hope. Paul says this, and this is the last scripture I'm going to put on the screen today. I'm going to leave it up there. And the reason I'm leaving it up there the rest of this time is I hope it permeates your heart and mind and your eyes. What Paul says when he's talking about the day of the Lord, he's talking about the day of the Lord. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. And be sober. So my primary purpose for this sermon on the wrath of Jesus is not to scare anyone. I don't want to scare anyone into repentance or some sort of decision. I have zero interest in that today. 
I mean, I want people to repent. I want people to come to Jesus, but I don't want to do it by preaching a sermon of fear. Because this passage was intended to be an encouragement to followers of Jesus who might be struggling with fear and doubt. Let me explain. Children of God have been given understanding that mere hope in the promises of peace and safety on this earth are pure folly. If you hear this passage and understand the reality that one day the Lamb will come to judge, if that is you and you hear this, you say, wow, that's not a good day. That says something about where you are spiritually. It means this, that you... When you hear this passage and you have this fear of the Lord, you recognize two things. First of all, how scary two-edged sword Jesus is, but also how precious Savior, mercy, grace Jesus is as well. The fact that you have apprehension of any type about facing the wrath of the Lamb is a sign that you have ears to hear. Why? Because as Scripture says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The Scripture also says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. Understanding the significance, understanding the reality of that day is not natural. It is a direct byproduct of the glorious gift of faith the Spirit of God has given you. Even when you weren't looking for faith, It found you. You understand, as a follower of Jesus, what the scriptures mean when it tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You understand how the gospel, God's plan of redemption, will bring you to the right side of Judgment Day. The fear of the Lord has already brought you to repentance and brokenness and humility and reliance upon God's mercy. You know that you're a sinner. You know that you could never measure up. And you know that your only hope is, oh man, the day of the Lord, I need Jesus. That is a miracle that you see that. You already embrace Jesus now. And in your gut, and listen, part of this this gut thing is sort of subjective. It's almost inexplicable. But in your gut... This is what's amazing. If that is you today, and you realize, wow, the wrath of the Lamb is a serious thing, in your gut, you know this is what God has always intended for you to know. In that respect, since He's known us before the foundation of the world, this is the glorious thing of eternal security. That wrath of the Lamb was never a danger for you because the Spirit of God has enlightened you, giving you ears to hear and eyes that can see and hearts that can understand and turn to Him and say, I want nothing to do with the wrath of the Lamb. I want the mercy of the Lamb. That's the beautiful irony of understanding the day of wrath. If you understand it, it provides affirmation that your faith today, Christian, is real. A passage on Judgment Day that becomes a blessing, providing evidence that should ensure you you're a follower of Jesus. Just merely understanding it says this. 
You don't have to earn anything. You realize your only hope is mercy, Jesus. Child of God, your understanding of that day is proof. God has already spared you from wrath. And he's called you to life. Dear Jesus, we certainly recognize, yes, you're Savior, but you're also Judge. And we also recognize as follower of Jesus's, Jesus today in 2022, that the day of the Lord is a real thing. It certainly sounds frightening. But we also know that same day includes something else. The day you gather all of those who understand the fear of the Lord. And while you are still in the process of letting the wheat and the weeds grow together, we know that one day you will come and gather the weeds and then gather the wheat and take it to your house. We look forward to that day. In many respects, we wish it was today. But we are so encouraged to know that through the gift of faith, you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear and understand that that day is real. And because we see that, we know that the fear of the Lord has given us wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Lord, for those brothers and sisters in our midst this morning and those watching online, for those who maybe have been struggling, am I really saved? Do I really know Jesus? Am I a Christian? Lord, help them see the fact that they're even asking those questions is a great sign. <laughs> It's a great sign that you are speaking, you are calling them, you are enlightening them and showing them that you intend to bring them to the right side of the day of the Lord. Lord, help those who are struggling with doubt to leave here encouraged, saying, wow, God has given me the wisdom to see what a great day that will be for me. And when those feelings of doubt begin to come in and we wonder, we look at the world, what is all going on? What is God doing? And maybe we ask the same questions the martyrs under the altar ask in the fifth seal. Why God? How long? When we ask those questions, remind us there's a day coming and you will be on the right side because you have been given ears to understand. And Jesus, we love you. We're thankful for you. And I think I can say this for hopefully everyone in this room. We acknowledge we are completely, fully dependent on you. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you guys. Have a great week. Go and be encouraged.